Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our podcast, Critical Conversations. My name is Kira, and I'll be your host today. So today I'm delighted to welcome Joy Norton. So Joy is the tracheostomy clinical nurse specialist at St. James's Hospital. The otolaryngology service which specialises in conditions of the ear, nose and throat, head and neck, including head and neck cancers. So St. James's Hospital is a centre of excellence in the management of head and neck cancers. We accept referrals from all over Ireland and have a dedicated multidisciplinary team. And the tracheostomy CNS is one such member of that multidisciplinary team. So thanks very much for joining us today, Joy. Thank you so much for inviting me, Kira, and for the opportunity to talk to you about the tracheostomy clinical nurse specialist role and team. I just begin by explaining to us a little bit about how you ended up in your role um, and when did your interest in tracheostomy care begin? Gosh, Kira. Well, my interest in tracheostomy care began very early on in my nursing career, actually. Like, there's certainly some standout moments during my nurse training, for sure. For example, given my first IM injection, my goodness, I was terrified, hands shaking. Oh God, I remember giving, being nervous about giving my first IM injection as well. I know, right? I remember telling my patient to wiggle their toes. I was terrified, the patient was terrified. And I remember quite vividly the first time I encountered a tracheostomy patient. Do you? Yeah. I do. I was a nurse day one on an ENT ward. And I remember I escorted a staff nurse into suction a tracheostomy patient. My goodness, I was overwhelmed and absolutely terrified. I remember coming out from that patient's room telling the staff nurse I'd look after every other patient on the ward, just not the tracheostomy patient. And what was it? What scared you the most about it, Joy? Well, I was terrified by the responsibility of it. Like that nurse was responsible for managing that patient's airway. I was gobsmacked. I just couldn't believe it. And I guess out of ICU, no other ward patients other than neck breathers rely on nurses to manage their airway. Yeah, it's true. But in the end of that very day, I was a tracky fan. Wow, a tracky fan. So <laughs> tell me in what way, tracky fan. Well, I was intrigued more than I was terrified by the end of it. I loved the immediate impact that that nurse's intervention had. I loved how we went into the room and you could hear the secretions rattle. And we all know the sound of secretions bubbling away. Yeah, we certainly do. Then once suctioning was carried out and the inner cannula was checked and seeing the patient's saturations bounce back up and hearing the patient breathe easy again, I just thought, well. And for the rest of that placement, I guess I got more exposure to tracheostomy and laryngectomy patients. And I really enjoyed it. And I guess ENT nursing is a little bit like Marmite. You either love it or you hate it. And I loved it. Yeah, it's certainly not everyone's first choice. For sure. And so after I qualified, I staffed on an ENT ward. And after about five years working in the area, I decided to do a postgrad in ENT nursing. Where'd you do that, Joyce? So that was with the Royal College of Surgeons and I was um, seconded to the Royal Victoria Ear Hospital for the year. Okay, how did you find that? I really enjoyed Akira. It gave me experience working in theatre. 
I worked in recovery, outpatients, the emergency department there, as well as the ward. So it gave me full exposure to all the different areas the ENT patient presents. And then it was perfect timing for me when the position of tracheostomy safety facilitator became available at the end of 2007, just as I completed the course. The role, I guess, was introduced in response to ongoing concerns in relation to tracheostomy safety out of the wards. So patients who had been transferred out from ICU to the wards were requiring readmission to the unit with um, tube blockages and mucus plugging. So in the 18 months prior to the post commencing, there had been like eight readmissions to ICU due to tube mismanagement on the wards. So this was a big driving factor. I guess when I took over from Joe, that was the end of 2007, it was actually a well-established service. The role was mainly about improving patient safety and identifying and reducing risks on the ward. So a lot of the work had already been done in this area. Okay, such as? So Joe initiated safety measures that we still see in practice today, such as the bedside tracheostomy emergency tray and facilitating the tracheostomy study day. And she also set up formal recording of tracheostomy figures and reporting them to HYPE which actually prior to the post, the hospital was massively underreported. So this was increasing financial gain for the hospital. Okay, interesting. And how did you feel taking over from her? Well, I was really excited to take over from her, but I knew I had big shoes to fill. And for the most of it, it was my dream job. I loved all the different elements to it, like the clinical patient contact, and um, the advanced skill practice, carrying out tube changes on ventilated patients, running a nurse-led clinic in outpatients for routine tube changes for our like long-term patients, mm. carrying out audits and research, identifying the gaps. I loved it all. So I remember after my first few wobbly sentences at the study day, I actually got into it. And I discovered, gosh, I actually really enjoy sharing my knowledge about tracheostomy care. And even though to this day, I don't particularly enjoy formal presentations and all eyes on me as such, but it's actually so rewarding. Like when you look at the post-study day evaluations and you see all attendees say that they now feel more competent in tracheostomy care. Mm. And for me, that is worth it tenfold. And like that, once you're passionate about your subject and you know what you're talking about, you are more capable than you think you are. Yeah, 100%. I totally agree with that, Joy. So then I guess at the time I took over the service, Brenda McGrath, a consultant intensivist in Manchester, he was establishing the National Tracheostomy Safety Project in the UK. And um, this was in response to tube mismanagement and patient deaths in the UK due to tube occlusion. So I actually was lucky enough to get the opportunity to go to Manchester to meet with Dr McGrath and his team and got to expand my knowledge in relation to tracheostomy safety. I guess the National Tracheostomy Safety Project, Project and the formation of the GTC, which is the Global Tracheostomy Collaborative, this is a body who we and everybody in the tracheostomy field benchmarks against. 
And were you able to introduce anything after this visit? Absolutely, Kira. Um, from their recommendations, changes were introduced to this hospital, such as the bedhead signs with the emergency algorithm on the back. We also looked at the lack of supply of heated humidification available for our tracheostomy patients. So we did up a business case and we brought about the introduction and the standard use of Airvo machines um, for all our neck breathers in the hospital, which has definitely helped reduce the risk of tube occlusion on the wards. And both of these recommendations were game changers in relation to patient safety within this hospital. Mm. So I guess the role quickly evolved from tracheostomy safety facilitator to tracheostomy clinical nurse specialist. Okay. And as the years went on, all the time the hospital was growing, demands on the service were growing. And like that, before I knew it, I was married with two kids working full time in a very busy job. Now, a job that I loved, but the service was struggling due to the increased patient numbers. Yeah. In particular, the number of laryngectomy surgeries. So, Kira, they had gone like from seven laryngectomies carried out in 2005 when the post was first introduced um, to an all time high of 42 in 2020. Yeah. So, that's an increase of 600% um, from when the service first commenced, from when the service first uh, commenced. And that's on top of 200 plus neck breathing inpatients each year as well as 30 long-term tracheostomy patients who require monthly tube changes. So the, the dreaded cold, I suppose, how did that impact on your service, Joy? Oh, God, jeepers, Kira. COVID is another interview <laughs> altogether. Yeah. But I guess looking after neck breathers posed increased risks to the staff looking after them. Viral load is much greater from a patient clearing secretions from their neck as opposed to their mouth. So like suctioning, inner cannula checks are all considered aerosol generating. Yeah. So this means all neck, breather, all neck breathers, regardless of COVID status, are considered high risk and should be nursed in isolation rooms. Yep. And as you know, each, each ward only has seven side rooms. So that meant not only were tracheostomy patients scattered on every ward, but also the complex laryngectomy patients. Okay. So like that, this involved as staff caring for complex patients on wards that didn't have the skill set or experience. Mm. So was adding extra pressure on the ward nurses and on the tracky service that was already struggling. But I have to say the way everybody adapted in this hospital and went above and beyond was just incredible. Yeah. Like everybody was operating outside their comfort zone and that's including management right the way down to the floor. Like they say, people during times of war are very adaptable. Yeah. And by God, the, the staff and patients of St. James's Hospital go to war with COVID. Yeah. Like it's just crazy looking back at it now, thinking did that really happen? Definitely. Not that COVID has gone away, but I don't think any person on the planet will um, forget the fear experienced by staff and patients in the first few months. Yeah. So yes, COVID definitely impacted on the tracheostomy service. And I suppose my work-life balance no longer existed. Like, it's difficult working full-time as such in a busy role. So I met with my boss. So once Rhina saw the figures and the data, you know, data speaks volumes. Yeah, it sure does. 
So when we put a business case together then, and in 2020, we got temporary approval for a second post. And to say I was delighted and relieved is an understatement. I was only short of doing cartwheels, Kira. Honestly. <laughs> Brilliant. Honestly, it's actually up there with the birth of my children. <laughs> okay, great. So I went job sharing and Lydia Satori and Deirdre O'Grady joined to become the tracheostomy clinical nurse specialist team. Right. So now I have the best of both worlds. I get to work in a job that I love. And I also get to spend more time with my family. And Kira, you know what it's like working as part of a team. I do. It's so wonderful. Like you get to share the load. It brings new energy and fresh eyes to the service and the power to get new ideas over the line while enjoying your job. Like it's given me job satisfaction again and a new lease of life. Like the girls are amazing. Deirdre is just so hardworking and one of the best networkers in the hospital. And Lydia is our spreadsheet queen, <laughs> making sure we're capturing all the data. And Lydia, being the full-timer, the patients all know her so well and absolutely adore her. Lovely. And then me being in the post for so long, I have the experience. So we all bring something different to the table, which is just great. We've been able to achieve so much by adding a second whole-time equivalent post. And I feel very fortunate to be part of such a highly functional, functional team and very fortunate to work at St. James's for that matter. So you still enjoy working at St. James's Hospital then after all these years, Joy? Well, I do, Kira, because being a Magna for Europe member, St. James's Hospital provides a great network of support for their CNSs. We have monthly council meetings and we catch up with other specialists and share knowledge and experiences on how to best deliver our services, which is just fantastic. There is a lot of innovation within this hospital and it's just great to see and to be part of it. Yeah, it's great. So I've already said in my introduction, Joy, that St. James's Hospital is the centre of excellence of head and neck surgeries. And what impact does this have on your role? Yes, this has a huge impact on our role and service. But I suppose it's not only head, the head and neck service that has grown. St. James's has grown in size. We have seen advances in treatment options for all patients. We are a member of Trinity St. James's Cancer Institute. We have seen the appointment of consultants in ICU and oncology head and neck. Mm. We are now talking about plans for an ICU tower and a dedicated head and neck pathway, which will be great for our patient, but it puts increased demand on our service. And as you mentioned, we are the National Centre for Head and Neck. We are currently taking 53% of the national load. So it's busy and it's challenging. The tracheostomy CNS team supports on average 250 neck breathing inpatients per year, and 60% of those patients are ENT and and MaxVax oncology patients. From a head and neck point of view, these patients we are seeing are more complex. Like They're not just simple tonsillectomy and thoracotomy, but they're more complex neck dissections, maxillectomies, glossectomies, laryngectomies, and PLOs. So caring for these patients is specialised and requires a full MDT approach. Mm. Like they say, it takes a village to raise a child. Yeah. 
Well, it takes all a hospital and all the specialities in it to recover a complex head and neck patient post-surgery. And that's not even joking. Like the patient's journey begins in outpatients. And this is when our ENT cancer nurse coordinators work their magic, making sure the patient gets worked up for surgery, usually within a six week time frame. So that's getting all the necessary imaging and also ensuring that the patient gets a bed on the planned surgery date, which isn't always easy given the current bed crisis. Yeah, absolutely. So again, like, These patients then require surgery and that can take 10 hours plus on an operating table. But not only the ENT and MaxVac surgeons involved, but also the plastics team to reconstruct the defect with various flaps and grafts and sometimes cardiothoracic surgeons as well as the um, the GI, uh, upper GI surgeons are involved depending on the location of the tumour. And they carry out truly fascinating and very intricate surgery. Yeah. Like the skill set, the precision and concentration this surgery requires is on another level. Like, so absolute credit to the surgeons and the full theatre team. Yeah. So then I suppose the patient is sent to ICU where the intensivists and the ICU nursing team work hard to get them stable enough for ward transfer. And then once transferred to the wards, this is really where the challenging road to recovery for the patient begins. Mm. Like a lot of these patients have a tracheostomy post-op or have had a laryngectomy, removing their ability to speak. And as we're seeing more salvage laryngectomy surgeries, meaning they've had previous radiotherapy, so a lot of them develop salivary fistulas and wound breakdown. Okay. And this has devastating repercussions of the patient not being allowed to um, eat and drink by mouth. So as you can imagine, Kira, like it's a very difficult road to recovery, both physically and mentally. Mm. The input uh, often input from psychology is required as the patient mood often plummets as they come to terms with it all. Also, speech therapists are involved for the patient's full admission, coming up with the best alternative ways for that patient to communicate, assessing their swallow, fitting them with voice prostheses if they've had a tracheosophageal puncture, and they also provide life remaining follow-up service once discharged. Okay. Clinical nutrition, also huge involvement for patient for the patient's full admission. Like head and neck oncology patients can be either NG fed, rig fed, peg fed, jedge fed, and may even require a TPN, say if they develop like a chyle leak. Um, and the clinical nutrition also provide a follow-up service once discharged. Okay. And physio is also involved not only from a secretion and mobility management um, point of view, but following neck dissections, a lot of patients have um, like restricted movement. Um, so they require extensive physio even after discharge. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. And for us, the tracheostomy CNS team, we are involved from the admission of these patients. So we provide like a pre-op consult to obtain important information that will help us map their discharge and their anticipated supports needed. So say if we know the patient is planned for a laryngectomy, we clarify if the patient holds a medical card. Okay. And if not, we send an urgent referral and medical supporting letter to the medical social worker. 
because for a safe return home for our patients, um, we need to order home equipment and supplies, which can be very costly. And sourcing equipment is definitely one of the most time consuming areas of our role. Right. Yeah, it involves liaising with the, the community appliance teams and the um, public health nurses, ensuring the correct the correct equipment is delivered and we facilitate patient education on its use pre-discharge. So we would also determine at admission what home support the patient has. So if living alone, we would send a referral to the occupational therapist just about regarding uh, installation of a panic alarm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because obviously the patients a lot of the time can't talk anymore. So it's really important for safety. Mm -hmm. So for the tracheostomy team, discharge planning really does start at the time of admission as it takes a long, long time to put all of these bits in place for a safe and successful discharge. So of the ENT oncology patients who do not require a laryngectomy, their tracheostomy tube is usually short term. So once all the post-op swelling has subsided, the patient is capped and then decannulated. But some patients do find themselves having a tracheostomy tube placed for medium to long term. And preparing neck breather, neck breathing patients for home requires a lot of tracheostomy CNS input and time. Like we commence like laryngectomy stoma care and tracheocare education from very early on in the patient's recovery. Because like that, the more practice they have at self-care as an inpatient, the more confident they'll be when discharged. Because the goal for these patients is to return to an altered but independent level of living. And part of our role is to help them with that. So all neck breathers discharged from St. James's Hospital have a life remaining follow up from the tracheostomy CNS service. Well, it really is life altering surgery. I didn't realise it was lifelong follow up. Um, So how do they manage it all, Joy? Uh, well, to be honest, like our patients are brilliant, Kira. Sometimes we ask an awful lot from them and their families, like to go home with a track, with mm-hmm. a new trackie or Larry, like it's huge. A lot of ward time and our CNS time goes into education, making sure the patient is comfortable and confident going home. So patients with complications like can stay on wards for months. So the ward nursing staff that care for them become as close as family to these patients. So like when we get to the day of discharge, it can be very emotional and it's such a big achievement for the patient and for all the staff that care for them. Like I really find head and neck cancer patients truly remarkable as going through all that and to still have a smile for the staff that care for care for them. Like it's humbling. It really, really is. What other types of patients do you see in your service and what other services do you provide? So I suppose as well as the head and neck cancer patients, we also provide care and input for patients who have a tracheostomy as a result of prolonged ventilation. Mm -hmm. So this patient can be literally under any speciality in the hospital. The insertion of a tracheostomy in critical care helps the patient wean quicker, so it frees up valuable ICU and HDU beds. 
and it's great at moving the patient one step closer to the recovery. Yeah. And like the majority of our of our patients begin their journey in ICU. So we have like a good working relationship with all the staff there. So that's the nurses, the intensivists, the educational team, and the introduction of the ANP has just been invaluable. Great. Like we're all working towards the same goal and um, the best outcome for a patient. Like, so there's a great sense of support from everyone. We also look after long-term tracheostomy and laryngectomy patients who are admitted via the emergency department. Hmm. So they may have a long-term trachea due to a weak and ineffective cough or patients. So these could be patients like with anoxic brain injuries, with Hmm. advanced MS, with motor neuron disease or ENT patients who are undergoing, say, radiotherapy or or have had a previous, say, laryngectomy surgery. So they may may be admitted with absolutely nothing tracheostomy or airway related. But we would still monitor them um, and ensure they and the wards they go to have the essential safety bedside equipment in place. Mm -hmm. We would also work a lot in outpatients. So as well as getting our long-term tracheostomy patients ready for home and ordering their equipment and educating them on it, we provide like a face-to-face follow-up support in outpatients and carry out routine monthly tube changes. Yeah. And so that's for our long-term tracheostomy patients. Okay. Our laryngectomy patients don't routinely come in monthly, but we are there uh, to support them whenever they need it. Like we are often the point of contact between long-term patients and the hospital. This point of contact is really crucial for these patients and provides reassurance and prevents them really from landing into our emergency department. So I guess we really are a pan-hospital service. We cover from the emergency department to MISA, so we certainly get our steps in. Good, good. Um, but it has a nice variety to the role. Like staff education is also a really important part of our role. Like we all love educating staff. And it's a nice part of our role, empowering nurses, giving them the skills and the confidence to carry out safe care and helping them make a difference. Yeah. Carrying out the education for staff or at the tracheostomy study day that is facilitated uh, four times a year, which is attended by the full MDT. Like So it's not just nurses, like speech and language, physio, um, all attend as well. Great. So in the last six months, 60% of our study day attendees were less than six months qualified. So this just shows like the pressure the clinical areas are under with a lot of junior staff out there. We are also responsible for um, tracheostomy policy, uh, which is there really to guide practice. And as I mentioned, we would benchmark ourselves against the UK National Tracheostomy Safety Project and the GTC guidelines. Okay. So currently we have our emergency guidelines and 17 SOPs available online, helping to simplify the care and breaking it into sections. And so it's making it easier for staff to access. So I guess all in all, it's no different to any other role. And there are parts that you see and parts that you didn't even know existed. Yeah, for sure. I'm learning a lot myself today about your role, I have to say. So from an ICU perspective, Joy, I guess, once the patient leaves the ICU with the trachea in place, Mm -hmm. what's the follow up then that you provide? 
So, Kira, I guess we'd support, uh, we'd support the patient and support the staff caring for them, ensuring that they have the correct skill set to provide safe care. We'd ensure that the correct safety equipment is in place, so the correct bed sign is erected and that the bedside tracheostomy tray is in place. And um, because to these patients, the emergency tray is as important as the crash trolley. Mm. Um, so we checked patient had the correct size safe suction catheters and replacement inner cannulas all the time, helping to reduce the risks and improving patient safety on the wards. Okay. We'd also like to keep an eye on the um, EPR documentation, okay. making sure the patient, um, making sure the tracheostomy monitoring observations are completed as it's not only ensuring that the care is being carried out, but we need this information to determine if our patient is meeting the need um, for tube removal. Okay. So if they're meeting the criteria, yeah. like are they tolerating the cuff deflation? Are they tolerating the speaking valve for prolonged period? for prolonged periods. Um, we'd be looking at myopathy. Are they still dependent on the trachea to toilet their secretions? How often are they requiring suctioning in a 24 hour, hour period? Yeah. Um, are they requiring say supplemental oxygen? Can we wean them from that? But basically as soon as they meet the criteria, we will remove the tracheostomy tube. Okay. And uh, I suppose we're supported by anaesthetics and ENT team if we have any complex cases. Yeah. And we also work closely with the speech and language therapist and liaise with physio, um, all of us together, trying to augment the weaning process as much as possible. So some patients require a fenestrated tube to wean, especially if they've had upper airway surgery. Yeah. So we like downsize, fenestrate and cap for 24 hours pre-removal to ensure the upper airway is back fully patent again. But tracheostomies for prolonged ventilations, let's say, uh, we don't, we can usually straight cannulate uh, once the patient meets the criteria and downsizing and capping usually not necessary. Yeah. So once they're decannulated, then we would um, follow them up and make recommendations. And what plans and innovations are there for patients in St. James's Hospital and Nationally Joy? Well, Kira, as a team, we are always really looking at our service and uh, how we can do things better. Uh, and sometimes simple changes can be most effective. Yeah. Like many of our many of our ideas uh, for change have come from listening to the staff and to the patients. So I guess in the past two years, we looked at the data and noted an increase in the number of pressure ulcers that could potentially be uh, related to tracheostomy devices. So I guess this prompted us to review our dressing choices and education styles. And so we, we uh, created a poster which not only educated, but it increased staff awareness of the potential risk. Yeah, I've noticed them up around the ICU, all right, it's great. Yeah, they, they've had a, a, a great success. Good. Um, then one of our larger, larger projects was developing a, a tracheostomy patient passport for our long-term tube wearers. So for the patients, this means having all the key details in relation to their tube and indications for it in one document. 
enhancing patient safety and enabling the patient to provide this critical information to healthcare professionals in emergency situations, regardless of the institution. Right, yeah. Yeah. So we also created a tracheostomy service page on the St. James's website. Also accessed, can also be accessed nationally as we are often the go-to for tracheostomy education and support. Um, We are also a member of the National Tracheostomy Working Group, working together to create a standardised care pathway for tracheostomy patients um, nationally. And I guess an exciting new quality initiative for this year, we have collaborated with the advanced nurse practitioners in in critical care to deliver simulation training in situ on the wards. As I mentioned from uh, our recent study days attendance, uh, we know staff on the wards are very junior. And so providing this training will hopefully give them the confidence and skill set required to deal with real life situations and emergencies and help improve um, patient safety and standards of care. And if it proves successful, uh, we will roll it out pan hospital. So it's a very exciting project for us. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. The collaboration is super. I think we'll leave it at that, Joy. So thanks very much for joining us today. We really appreciate you giving us your time. Thanks as always to our listeners. Please like, subscribe and share our podcast on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts. So we look forward to joining you again on the next episode of Critical Conversations.